My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of An Irishman in America. A very unusual thing this week where Marion McKeown is not available to record uh, our usual US update. Uh, As you can see, we've done something a little bit different. We've gone back deep, deep into the vault, into the archive from three years ago. The first conversation I ever had with Marion herself, an interview about the woman who has provided us us with all of this information and entertainment over the last two years. She is an extraordinary woman who graduated from DCU, in case you don't know. And she describes to me uh, the Dublin that she knew in the 80s in this conversation. She explains why the misogyny of that time failed to reach her. And you're going to love this. The tearaway teen years of Marion, where she went AWOL from a job uh, as the least qualified tennis instructor at an American tennis camp. That's just one of the great stories that's in this episode. I'm so glad to bring it out of the archive and let you hear it here for free. Of course, Irishman Abroad can't survive on air alone. In 2022, we have reached a bit of a crossroads where we cannot continue Irishman Abroad anymore without your support on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Pop over there, have a look and see what you think. We're offering a 15% discount for the month of May, so there's never been a cheaper time to sign up. In return, you'll get access to all our episodes, hundreds of episodes dating right back to 2013, and all our big episodes that are coming in the future. And of course, you'll get full access to Marion. Every single week, an hour-long discussion of the biggest news in America. The only place to hear Marion go in-depth on what is taking place in America right now in the lead-up to the November elections. It's all on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. But uh, enjoy it. It's the original Marion McKeown episode of An Irishman in America. I guess the best place to begin is with your first journey out of Ireland. I mean, we know you now as this kind of uh, Irish ambassador in the States covering American politics. But when was it you first left and how hard did the bug bite that it made you go, you know what, I can make a life elsewhere? Well, honestly, the first time, and I still remember my parents' look of sort of bemusement when I was 13 and I said, uh, I want to go to France and I've saved all my babysitting money (laughs) and I've called our cousin Mary who lives in Paris and she said I can stay with her. And they were, they just looked at me like, uh, and then they kind of went, uh, okay. 
So I, I remember my dad driving me to the airport and I couldn't wait to get on the plane. And I think he was a bit a bit sort of um, disappointed probably that, that there weren't sobs at the airport and hugs. And, and I was like, OK, see ya. <laughs> really? So you... And off I went, yeah. And, uh, and then um, my that cousin who I stayed with, who was a fantastic woman, um, I went there every summer then throughout school years and... Um, and then from there, I suppose it was I was just never off the road after that, really. I mean, I, I went to college in Dublin and then in London, but um, it was you know every chance I got, I was heading to the airport or, or if not the airport, the bus stop, you know, some, somewhere. Yeah, so so it's obviously a bug. It's it's a, a oh, way yeah. of life, or certainly a passion that you had from your teenage years. I can remember certainly loving the airport and just the idea of so much yeah. action. You obviously went and uh, finished your degree in 1984. I'm sorry to mention the year, but just to yeah, give people yeah. a context of the Ireland that you were leaving behind. Like oftentimes we've talked to people on the show who talk about that Ireland and how, yeah, of course you were keen to get out because it was pretty bleak. It was it as bleak as people make out or do you have memories of it? You where... know, I have the happiest memories of Dublin in the 80s. And ju just to be clear, I did leave and travel. I went to New York for nine months in between. But I, when I finished the law degree in 84, and then I went on to the journalism master's in DCU, or NIHE as it was at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I went and, and did the bar. So I, so I really eventually left Dublin around... 1987, more or less permanently, because um, before that I'd been travelling, like I'd done all the usual travels and the, you know, the interrailing as it was then and all that nonsense. And I'd spent a couple of summers in the States and I'd spent a summer in New York when I was 22 and I went over for the summer and I couldn't come back. I came back at Christmas or January, yeah, just before Christmas. And, uh, you know, I, the college first term was <laughs> went by the by and you know, it, 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 um, but Ireland in the 80s. No, you know what? It gets bad press. The thing about it was, and I do remember this in college, we all went to college with the presumption that we probably weren't going to get jobs afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so we were all very into music and we were very into, you know, theatre and writing and reading and all that kind of stuff. And there was a real freedom about that because you weren't really expected to, to get a first class honour because you had to get the best job, you know, at whatever. College was much less, I think, stressful and much less competitive probably than it is now. I mean, I, I see like nieces, nephews, kids I know in college now, I think, oh, my God, they work really hard. And I'm sort of tempted to say, hey, listen, lighten up, have a party. But yeah. I don't want to be the auntie that says that. So sure. I don't. Uh, sure. But, and it's uh, also a different not, world. Not Different, different, different world. world. Yeah. Yeah. But but Dublin, um, I would say for fun, uh, if that's what you were after, in, certainly in the 80s, there was there was an abundance of it. It never ran out. And we would literally go out to a music gig or whatever, you know, one night and we might come home two days later because there, there were rolling parties all over Dublin. And we hosted in, in my original house on, on South Circular Road, we hosted a fair few of them. So much so our house was known to the local constabulary as Hotel Sin. <laughs> Oh <laughs> Holy God. So, you know, it was all, it was all very, I was, it was really, I, you know, I'm not being sort of sentimental and saying, ah, oh, we had nothing but we were happy, but we really had a huge capacity to enjoy ourselves. And I think Dublin then, we were part of kind of the punk new wave thing. And I think that was a wonderful time for women that's never really spoken about because it wasn't a time when you had any intention of, even if you were expected to dress up and look pretty, you wore plastic bags and safety pins in your nose. And if you wore makeup, it was kind of in a way that made you look as scary as possible. You know, it was <laughs> it was very, very liberating. And all the all the guys we hung out with, uh, you know, um, were 
were absolutely there. There was there was no misogyny. There was no sexism. You were, you know, you were respected if you were smart and you were tough and you were together. And that that was it. You know, so I'm painting a bit of a dreamy picture, but really that that's my. I absolutely loved Dublin in the eighties. No, loved it. no but, misogyny. But, Let me stop you there. No misogyny. Okay. Not that I encounter with men that I was in college with, with men that I, I was growing up with. And I will say um, that I have been very lucky in the editors I've worked with um, so far that because the the editors I've worked with, who, who've all been men pretty much, have been the smartest and the most fun and the least misogynistic. And journalism is a career that's rife with it. And there were certainly editors. If you wanted misogyny, you, you knew where to go to get it. But I, I was very lucky in the choices I've made. Mm. And yet, uh, amidst all of this, there's the decision to go to the law library, which, yeah. you know, obviously draws you out of the crack and having the fun because you're not going to get through the law library without putting the head down. I'd assume that hasn't changed. Well, you know, as a student, the lectures where it was two hours a day, it wasn't particularly difficult. This is a myth that lawyers make to make themselves <laughs> seem more t- intelligent than they are. I'm not kidding. Uh, you know, people think, oh, it's so hard doing doing the l- law. It's not. It's boring. <laughs> that If you can get through the boredom and the tedium of reading hundreds and hundreds of cases, it's not difficult. It's logical. And so I'd say to anybody out there, don't be put off by barristers and solicitors who, who act like there's some great mystery to being a successful lawyer. There isn't. It's like you say, you work hard, but you don't have to be brilliant. You can, you know, you can do the work and you can have fun. But but one thing I do remember very fondly about the, the law library when, when I was there is, again, it's a place where there's a lot of fun. Now, I would say there is misogyny there. There is a, there was a culture there. And again, I was really lucky because I, I had two, um, I refused to call them masters and they would laugh at that and they would agree with me. Um, that, but the two, the two um, barristers, senior barristers that I deviled with uh, were two of the most incredible, smart, decent and fun men that I've ever met. And there, there, there was not a screed of it there, but I do know other women who were in my position who were very, very unhappy about the way they were treated and they really mm. felt they couldn't say anything. So I'm not I'm not going to paint it as a, you know, OK, as, as a place that was. And I, I went back to the law library in the 2000s for a couple of years. So I'm not talking about 1987 here. I'm talking about 2009, 10, 11. Wow. So what what changed then? That's so interesting, because really what you're describing here, Marion, is not something that's ever been described to me on the show. Usually it's about the bleakness and how, you know, it was windswept city. There was very little development, very little to do. And certainly backward is the word that keeps coming up, that notion that. If you really wanted to see civilization, you were to to London with you. Uh, no, you know, I went to London mainly because, you know, I'll tell you why I went to London first. Well, one of the reasons was after I'd finished the uh, journalism masters in mm-hmm. DCU, it was a it was a postgrad diploma at the time. So, I, uh, but anyway, it's, it's a masters now. We all applied for places um, in, 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 you know, with newspapers, and bizarrely, because I really wanted to go to London because there was I, I was. I loved the whole music scene at the time and London was really where the whole punk thing was at. Uh, so I applied to work for The Universe, which was a religious newspaper, a Catholic <laughs> newspaper based in London. Frankly, I was not even slightly religious, but it paid well. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, as in it paid four or five times better than any of the other interns on offer and uh, internships. And it... Um, 
it was London. So I went and now I did, the editor there was a chap called Kieran Moore, who used to be a B-movie actor in Hollywood. Uh, you may or may not remember Return of the Triffids. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Kieran was in Return of the Triffids. And he also had a, a role in Anna Karenina, the first Hollywood version of Anna Karenina. Uh, and he never really got over Hollywood. But he did tell us all loud and often, usually twice a day, in fact, that uh, he was on the golf course with Ronald, uh, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, that would be and uh, he was hit by a bolt of lightning I'm sorry I know I sound like I'm laughing but, but anyway when he got up and he was saved by his iron or his driver or whatever it was whatever golf club he was using had a wooden handler you know he had he had a long story about this but he when he was hauled to his feet by Ronald Ronald Reagan he discovered a calling for religion so he abandoned Hollywood gave up his gave up his shameful ways and relocated to London where he became the editor of a Catholic newspaper and he was to the right of Genghis Khan you know I mean he really was so we had numerous fights and arguments and rounds and threatened walkouts and and whatever and we I, I think he really didn't quite know what to make of of somebody who answered him back and a woman who answered him back, I should say. And and so that was my, my only experience of an editor who I really just wanted to punch on several occasions, if I may say so. Um, <laughs> you say and, you weren't religious at all. You, you were coming no. from a really Catholic country at the time where there's obviously oh, no yeah. contraception or, you know, there's massive, massive conservatism reigning right from the pulpit and descending all through every political establishment. Why weren't you in any way religious? And was there many of you at the time? Many of us that weren't religious. Yeah, that, that just weren't buying it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, most people that I knew that I hung out with, um, I would say certainly, I think, you know, as you were saying earlier about Dublin being the windswept, as I said, it was yes, it was cold and it was grim in many ways. But, you know, it depends on what you're looking for in life, in what makes you happy and what makes you feel fulfilled. I wasn't looking for cappuccino bars. I didn't have any interest in buying a car or getting a mortgage or any of those things at the time. And, you know, we were interested in, in as I said, music, theatre, live music especially. There wasn't a single band, a punk band that came to Dublin between 1978, I'd say, and 1988 that I didn't see, you know, several times maybe. Uh, we were, all my friends were passionate about music. We were all passionate about books, about, I said, all those things. And Dublin had an abundance of that in the 80s, but it also had an irreverence because there was there was a sort of a, a rebellion, I think, in 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 Dublin in the in the 80s, amongst the the late teens and 20s, that was very seductive because it wasn't quite anarchy, like you know, it was on the the Sex Pistols level, but there there was an irreverence and a, a questioning things and and a humour, and a, you know, you really had to be on your toes, and you know, I mean, it was a it was a, a time that tested your mettle, I think, and and really having a good time was was the priority of most people, but but in in a way that was also very very stimulating, as I said, with, with all of the arts that were in Dublin at the time and, and the culture that was in Dublin at the time. And it's still there up in spades, you know, mm. but uh, but it, it was a different city. We went to pubs. No one went for coffee. You went for a pint, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it, like it, Guinness was <laughs> was the stable. Guinness and Tato crisps were your stable diet. <laughs> you know, so nothing wrong with that. When did the love affair with America begin? I mean, I... 
I have to say, Mary, there's not a whole, you haven't given a whole load of interviews about your past. And myself and Kyle, my researcher, really struggled to find, you know, the story that is your life. And actually, the best I could find was ultimately your LinkedIn kind of gave me the, the path that you took. And I guess there is a leap there, isn't there? There is a leap well, from kind of features editor to foreign editor to U.S. editor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's weird you should say that because it would never, I mean, I th- I don't think journalists normally, I mean, and I'm really happy to do this with you, but I don't think journalists have any business being interviewed. The day a journalist thinks they're the story is a, is the day they should really uh, put away their, their laptop, you know. I mean, like, I see my job very much as to report on what's happening and, and I shouldn't be any part of that and you know and I think that that's one of the things that's happened with journalism now that it's lost credibility because we've all slunk into opinion journalism and we've all slunk into talking about ourselves journalism and you know I'm not a fan of it I mean and, and, and I'm not criticizing anybody who does it but it's just not something that I think is part of mm. of journalism so um yeah the first time I went to the states I was 17 and um I had gone on a bunny camp thing where you were supposed to be I got accepted for a job a summer job the, the the attraction was this this sort of organization brought you over to the states they give you a job working in a children's camp as a, a volunteer for eight weeks but then you had a visa for three months oh i'm so sorry you had a visa for four months afterwards or three months afterwards and you were in the states and your flight there was paid for your flight home was paid for so i signed up as a tennis coach i barely knew when one end of the tennis <laughs> from the other tennis appears to, out yeah, of nowhere in this conversation seriously <laughs> in my, i loved watching it i was a big fan of wimbledon but that was as far as it went anyway so so I went to Camp Tapawingo, which was run by this American couple called Mr. and Mrs. Mike. And they were, it was up in northern Maine. And it was full of stinking rich kids. And the parents were, you know, they were like Stephen King's daughter at the time was there, Naomi King. She was actually pretty scary for a 10-year-old. <laughs> and it was, but it was the parents, you know, on a parents' day, they would arrive um, by helicopter on the lawn. And it was kind of an eye-opener to a life that I didn't really know existed that level of individual private wealth you know and then needless to say I got fired um I won't go into the reasons why but I got fired and so I headed off um around the states I had a friend in Texas who was staying with her uncle there and her uncle was in the FBI and I said look I'll come down and meet you but anyway I went off on a road trip and got distracted and forgot to turn up in Texas I'll save you the long road trip that happened but it was very interesting in parts and anyway about a month later and I, I eventually ended up out in California but Gronya's uncle who was in the FBI thought I'd been abducted so oh jeepers that caused a bit of a drama because I didn't turn up so after a month he uh, phoned my dad who had no idea I was gallivanting around the states and said that they were they'd started looking for my body in morgues or whatever uh, so anyway that <laughs> soft my cop but I was absolutely fine having a wonderful time just hitchhiking and traveling around the states and you know just, oh, just really being God. a stupid 17 year old hold, you know, really. hold the phone you've got to stop there that is that is way too much that Why? is way too much <laughs> let's start with, let's start here how like look this is a side that I I was not expecting to come out here you sound like an absolutely wild teenager you well, you, okay. You're fired from a tennis co- coaching job that you've absolutely blagged your way into. Please tell you. us how you lost the job and was it for the lack of tennis knowledge? Okay. I'll tell you how I lost the job. And there were there were two things. 
now. Um, goodness, I haven't spoken about this in years. Uh, there were two things. Firstly, I was there on the 4th of July, and we got this idea. They were having this big parade on the 4th of July, and everybody was going to come out and raise the American flag on the lawn. And we got this sure. idea. Oh, wouldn't it be really funny to put up something different? Uh, so, <laughs> so when they came out, we had put up a homemade Soviet flag which really went down like a lead balloon and before that I had got a warning because they had these school buses and the nearest town was North Conway and myself and another guy who I made great friends with there who was a bit of a lunatic we decided we'd rob the bus and drive to North Conway And then we ended up um, getting arrested on the way back. He was driving, not me, uh, but he'd had a few beers. And we had to spend the night in the police station. Anyway, oh that God. was that. So we, I was not in good in good odour with the with Mr. and Mrs. Mike at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you know, I was actually kind of happy when I got fired because uh, it meant I had a couple more weeks, you know, to just spend time doing what I really wanted to do, which was to see the states. So the flag was the was the tipping point. That was what made them go. That's it, Irish girl. You're That's out of here. Get out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, yeah. Uh, amazing uh, but, when you consider the America that you're in now where you're speaking to oh, us right. from that a, a prank such now. as that I mean, would go viral they knew it was a prank they, they knew it was a prank you know and they weren't but they just they were like you know I, I mean I wasn't making any political statement or anything but mm. uh, but we just thought oh wouldn't this be really funny uh, but it wasn't really funny apparently <laughs> it wasn't funny at all uh, so that that was that but, but, uh, Marianne, but if, if you were to do that today it would be a whole different of course, oh my god uh, on, unless like, like, put a Russian flag up in Donald Trump's lawn and he'd probably, yeah. he'd probably, probably salute it. <laughs> yeah. He probably would. But like, isn't it what you've just given us as as much as it is a tale of, you know, kind of teen hijinks, it yeah. is it is a it is a window into kind of that era of America, that first glimpse you had of it. Obviously, the one that again aroused this bug in you to stay and love and fall in love with this mm -hmm. place of opportunity and optimism and obviously substantially better weather. Indeed. <laughs> uh, but like there is a even when you look at movies from that period, I know they're not exactly uh, capturing the time, but you must now look back on that America versus the one you're sitting in now as nearly a different planet. Yeah, now th that America was um, th when I was there at seventeen. What was it? It was it was the uh, was it late seventies, early eighties? It was. It, I think it might, but it was, it, it was. You know, the one thing that I've always noticed, Jonathan, is that the the difference between America. If you had to pick and divide American history into two parts, it's pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Because when people say after 9-11, everything changed, it sounds like a cliche, but it's absolutely true. And I was in New York for 9-11, you know, and, and down at the World Trade Center when the second plane hit. And I remember really thinking that and thinking this is because at that stage, nobody knew what was coming next. You know, you were you were just like trying to process what was happening in the moment. But America changed then. Something something in America became very, very different. I mean, America Americans have always loved their country in a way that I actually think is is lovely. Like, they're proud of being American. They're proud of what America has given them, of how they've managed to succeed here, where they really do believe they would never have succeeded in any other country. And I think they're probably right to a large degree. But... Um, you know, it's it's different now. This is uh, this America is an America I don't recognize. Really, you you say that you don't recognize it, but you you know you've witnessed the evolution. Maybe yeah. tell us about 
9-11, the day itself. And, you know, the as you say, the night and day that my own sister was in New York at the time as well. And she, you know, she spoke to me about this kind of cloud that came over the place, uh, literally yeah. and figuratively. What do you remember of that time? And when did you get the sense that this this is now a, a new world? OK, um, well, just very briefly, the morning that it happened, I just come back from a weekend away in Cape Cod and um, it was about 8.30 in the morning and Martin Wall, who now works for the Irish Times, had called me and I just got up and I he said, have you seen the news? And as he said it, I flicked on the TV and I said, OK, I'm leaving now. I'll be right down there because at that stage we thought it was a plane crash. We thought a plane had crashed into the Twin Towers, that it was a terrible accident. Hmm. Uh, so... I wasn't far away. And I think at that stage, everyone thought that. But I had my New York journalism pass and all that. So when I got down to 14th Street, they let me through. So I got there literally just as the second plane was hitting. And I remember that was, you know, the weird thing is people say um, that about the images and the images must be in your mind. And for me, I can't honestly tell what I saw and what I saw on TV afterwards. You know, mm. I know what I think I know what I saw. And I did see people leaving. And I remember a couple of images very, very clearly. But what I remember was the noise, the noises and the sounds. And I remember the the screams and the sobs and the sirens and, and the bang, the almighty bang. And then when the first tower came down, this noise that I'd never heard before, that was just like a sucking... Earthquake. I, I can't. I still can't describe it. Um, but um, and the ground shaking, and and us all being told to just run, 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 get out of there. So um, that was. And then I remember walking down the, the nearest bridge to there. Went over to Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Bridge, and people were covered in white dust. Everyone was covered in white dust, and some of them had. Um, you know, injuries, minor injuries, but they had. There was blood. They were cut by shrapnel or, or flying glass or whatever, but. After all the screaming and the panic and the sirens down around the World Trade Center, uh, people were being directed to walk across the bridge to Brooklyn and to just get on the Brooklyn Bridge. And just and thousands and thousands of people ended up walking across that bridge to Brooklyn, but nobody was speaking. It was completely silent. And most people were covered in, as I said, this weird sort of yellowish white dust. They were crying. And you could see the tear marks making their ways through the dust. And they, they also, um, as I said, some of them had, minor wounds that were bleeding um, but it was this feeling of it was like zombies and I'm not saying that in any disrespectful way but just this this trail of people just walking and walking not speaking and just so shocked, sh literally shocked into silence and and um, it was so weird and then I went I went back down to the World Trade Centre again and I was down around there until about 10 o'clock that night or 11 o'clock that night uh, just talking to, to medical people because of course very few people ended up going to the hospitals because the people who got out got out quickly and the people who didn't um, were killed you know so there were very few injuries relative to what you would normally expect. Uh, and all the doctors were standing outside the hospitals waiting for ambulances. Some of them came, some of them didn't. But, the, you know, and and then I went home and my younger sister was staying with me th at that stage. And at about four o'clock in the morning, the whole apartment vibrated and there were fighter jets flying up the East River. And the noise again was deafening. And my sister turned around because we both woke up and she came into my room. She said, has a war started? 
And I just said, I don't know, because we really didn't know in those days. And of course, New York rallied and New Yorkers were heroic and we all went to give blood. And, you know, everybody was it was a time of great, you know, unity in the city. And, and of course, the heroic, the heroism of the fire people, the firemen and the, the police. And, you know, there, there was a lot for New Yorkers to feel really proud of. But it, it around the country was changed. And then, of course, the anthrax attacks happened after that. And then you had the Washington sniper, which was when I really saw what fear looked like and how two people, one of them a 16 year old, could lock down a whole city. Um, and, and it never really got back to the America that it was, which was in the late 90s, it was so prosperous. You know, you had the Clinton boom, the dot-com boom. Uh, there were no wars. America had emerged as a superpower. The Cold War was over. It was an economic and a military superpower. And it really seemed like it was... And, and they were sort of the halcyon days probably for America when its authority and its moral authority was very strong in the world. You know, it had it had achieved the peace process in Northern Ireland. It had helped to end the war in Bosnia. You know, it, it was standing high morally as well as financially, as well as militarily, as well as economically. And I, I don't see those days ever being recaptured. Tell me this. You described that, and I'm sure that you'd never been in a war zone or in a situation like it and... Uh... I know that from people I've spoken to that were there that they were traumatized by it and they didn't realize they were traumatized until much later. Uh, were you yeah. traumatized by it? And if not, why not? Um, you know, I don't know. I think if not, I didn't. It was very, I think at the time, because I worked, we were working 18 hours a day at that stage because it was such a huge news story. And I think because I was working, I was I was talking to other people. So I was more recording what they were experiencing and, and not really thinking about what I was doing other than making sure I made whatever deadline I needed to make, whether it was for the newspaper or whether it was for the radio. So I think, but there was, there was a sadness. There was a sadness and there was a, you know, certainly I felt that and the grief. And I remember the one day that I, felt so heartbroken was not the day it happened or the day after but about six weeks later when the search and rescue maybe it wasn't six weeks and I got I can't remember I went down it was the end it was the formal ending of the search and rescue that that they where where people accepted that anybody who had been there that day was not coming out now maybe it wasn't six weeks maybe it was sooner than that Uh, and I remembered all these mothers you know with pictures of their sons and daughters who were policemen and women who were firemen and women who were and just sobbing because they realised I think that day that they weren't coming back and I think that was the day that I realised the enormity of what had happening and the suffering which I had realised all along because all the work I was doing was talking to people who had either been in the Twin Towers or who were in the hospitals or who had survived or who had lost loved ones you know um, but seeing hundreds of people there just holding pictures and, and sobbing was was really a heartbreaking day. I always think when I read your work or when I hear you uh, on the radio that there's a huge amount of humanity in what you do and how you do it to the point where, you know, you would get criticism from people for not being more hardline and tough in that way that uh, has polarized a lot of kind of snowflakes yeah. and older generations. I'm not accusing you of being that, but what I'm saying no, is... No, but I t- it's a point I take, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That you, you obviously make space for it and treasure it and pri- take pride in it in yourself, but 
you must have to compartmentalize when you're in this job. You must have to go, well, there's a there's a there's a line and I keep myself to here and then my working self to there. Can you talk to us a little bit about that on how you think about it? You know, it's tricky because a lot of my friends work in journalism and a lot of them were working here at the time or are working here now in journalism. And we talk shop a lot, you know, as you do when you're a journalist. You, you kind of, you do talk about what's going on. But as well, at the moment, America is so politically aware that I actually find a lot of times when I go out, people will say, well, what's going to happen? What's What about Trump? What about... And, you know, you, you kind of almost want to go, oh, no, look, I, I just want to go out and, and talk about something else, you know, because mm. it does reach... I found, honestly, that the 2016 campaign was the most exhausting campaign I ever covered because of the toxicity. It was literally like you felt like you wanted to get into a bath every night after a day in the campaign trail and just wash it off because the the you know I think you have to be fair I uh, there are a number of Republicans who I speak to regularly who I have huge admiration for who are, who I count as friends and you cannot pigeonhole people and say you're a Republican therefore you're this this and this people are entitled to their political views they're in, but be they to the left or to the right they are not entitled though to discriminate against other people to hate other people and to bully other people you know and that's really where, where I would draw the line sure people have different economic solutions sure Sure, people believe less tax, more tax, no tax, whatever. All of those uh, positions I can take, but not the sort of fascistic stuff that that's rampant in America at the moment. And I feel that it doesn't matter if you're a journalist or if you're just an ordinary person. You've got to stand up. You've got to call it out, you know. And so I would be compassionate too. And, you know, this is just, I, I'm literally saying what the first thing that comes into my mm. head, which is travel failing, but I'm just flashing back here. To, I remember when I was covering the campaign trail, I was up in Nebraska, which was very, very pro-Trump, and it was coal miner country, the part I was in, and they hated Hillary Clinton because she had said it's time to close coal mines, you know, global warming, etc., etc., and Barack Obama had been very active on climate change to his credit. And one of the guys had lost his job in the coal mine that I was talking to. He was a decent guy, a really, he was about probably 45 and he said, you know, I don't like Donald Trump. I don't I don't agree with him about women and the way he speaks about Mexican people and foreign people. And he said, but I worked in a coal mine for, for you know, for 20 years. And he said, I was making $80,000 a year plus free health care. I said, now I've lost my job. I said, I have five children. I said, now I work in, in um, it was Home Depot, I think he said. And he was stocking shelves for $10 an hour. And he said, and he looked at me and the desperation on his face, I won't forget. And he said, but I still have five children. He said, now I make $400 a week, but I still have five children. And he, it was desperation that made him vote for Trump because he believed. And he was right to a degree that people like Hillary Clinton weren't listening. They weren't, they didn't realize that, or if they did, they weren't making it their, their simply clear they, that millions of people in 2008 lost their homes. And those millions of people were never going to get a new home. They were going to rent for the rest of their lives if they were lucky. Millions of people lost their jobs. They were never going to get those jobs back. They were going to get minimum wage jobs if they were lucky. And, you know, and I think that the, the catastrophe of, of the 2008 and the, the Wall Street meltdown and the fiscal crash for ordinary Americans was, you know, and yes, Barack Obama restabilized the country. And yes, the recession did end slowly and painfully. But 
the suffering of these people was never really acknowledged. Mm. And they saw Donald Trump as somebody who was angry and they were able to sort of um, conflate their anger with his anger. And he seemed to be somebody who was, and he's, he's such a skilled communicator, who was battling for the ordinary Americans, the poorly educated, as he called them, you know, sort of white poorly educated um, urban America and rural America as well and they really believed that he cared and mm. I think they're finding out now that no he didn't because it's not them in particular it's just that Donald Trump's agenda is Donald Trump and I think it's absolutely fair to objectively say that as a journalist you know it's it's yeah it, and we're in tricky territory because you don't you can't You've got to be balanced about your reporting, but in order to, being balanced means calling out Donald Trump for what he is and for what he's doing. Next Thursday, as you know, is the final live episode of the podcast and kind of our end of year bash. I want as many patrons to be there as possible. So grab a ticket now. The final ones are out there and I have informed those that have won the free tickets that patrons are entitled to. I only had a handful this time. Hope My hope is to put on a full patrons only event uh, towards the end of 2020. But this time around, this is how we're doing it. The tickets are reasonably priced at 15 euros for Thursday night. Simon Delaney will be there. Tara Flynn, Trish Long, Finian Murphy, Peter Stringer and lots more. Plenty of surprises included on the night. I can't wait to do this one. Really great to come back to Dublin and close out the year with a big one like this. So thank you all if you've already bought tickets. And if you haven't, now's the time. The last ones are on sale by Ticketmaster or the Dublin Podcast Festival with Aiken Promotions and Headstuff. Andrew Trimble's the guest next week. Andrew Trimble, who's that you're saying? Most of you know, if you've any interest in rugby, he was an absolute beast of a player, standout for Ulster and Ireland in his time and suffered with crippling uh, insecurity and lack of self-confidence for much of that career until Joe Schmidt showed up. And that conversation with him about how he overcame that lack of self-confidence through the implementation of the Joe process is pretty special, I think, and has application to all of our lives because many of us are operating through that fear of being found out and then suffering with that imposter syndrome. And we don't know why. We don't know why if it's an Irish thing or just there's a way through it. I certainly do it myself. But this Andrew Trimble chat next week, really breaking it down and getting into how he came through it and ended up playing the best he'd ever played and has gone on to have this pretty uh, incredible career in business post rugby. That's next week. Andrew Trimble already recorded in the can and ready to go for you. Uh, so live episode and a pre-recorded uh, one for you next week. Uh, plenty of guests confirming in the lead up to Christmas now, trying to back up everything so that when you're on the walk in the cold with the dog across the Christmas holidays and you're trying to get out of the house just away from the family, You'll have plenty of Irishmen Abroad podcasts to keep you company in their full unabridged version as you have requested. That kind of uh, uh, politics of the family and the Christmas stress is what I focused this year's Christmas cards on. You may know this, but I make Christmas cards once a year, put together 10 cards that are specifically Irish humour. They're only available through jigsaw.com and I donate the profits to charity. It's not really a money-making venture and that's why the price has remained the same for the last 10 years. 20 euros sent to wherever you are in the world. 
10 of the funniest Irish Christmas cards you're going to find. I, I put my money on that. You won't find funnier Irish cards. They're from jigzer.com. If you want to hop over there, sign up for the mailing list, see the tour dates and find out the details of the Vicar Street show that's planned for 2020 and the tour that's coming up, go to jigzer.com. Thanks again for signing up, guys. Couldn't do it without you. Please spread the word. And now let's get back to this conversation with Marion McKeown. My name's Porter Carrington. My name is Chris O'Dowd. My name is Philomena Lee. My name is Brian O'Driscoll. My name is Tommy Tiernan. My name's Eamon Dunphy. My name's Ashling B. My name is David Walsh. I'm Ronan O'Gara. My name is Cecilia Hearn. My name's Stuart Lee. My name's Jason Mumford. My name is Jamie Heathcliff. My name is Damien Dempsey. My name is Robert Sheehan. My name is Keith Gillespie. It's Mr. Hector O'Hockagon. My name's Mark Lawrenson. My name is Shane Horgan. My name is Louise O'Neill. My name is Hosier, and you are listening to An Irish Man Abroad. I feel like we could go into the Bush era and watching Barack Obama. Which was worse in many ways than, than Trump. In many ways, it Yeah, was in terms of the damage it did. Uh, yeah. But, but I, I do think that, like, we should... Maybe we can understand that backwards if we go from okay. what you witnessed with Donald Trump coming to power. Because like you mentioned it already, the decisiveness of what he was saying seems yeah. to be a, a very attractive thing to American voters. Really decisive. I mean, yep. let's not talk he about this. Message. This is how it is. So that's yeah. that's an obvious attraction. Yeah, I mean, giving tax cuts to the rich was the other promise, which he's largely kept. Um, he's kept his promises, a lot of them, absolutely. The conservative you know? ju judges yeah. did that as yeah. well. I mean, yeah. the only group that you've rightly pointed out that could be unhappy with them are these people, disenfranchised, poorer people living in essential essentially poverty as a result of the yeah. decline of these fossil fuel industries. And yeah. all he's got for them is scapegoats, that this is the foreigners yeah. coming in, yeah. taking blame, your blame jobs. Blame the Muslims, blame the Mexicans. And, you know, with me, the, the, the scapegoating of, of Muslims in particular, I spent four years almost in Somalia and in Syria between 2011 and 20, the beginning of 2016. And, you know, when you see what these people have suffered and what the, the evil of the Syrian war, the evil brutality, not just the, 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 the calculated brutality and savagery of that war and the displacement it's caused and the suffering it's caused to ordinary people who had no idea why the war even started. And when I saw what I saw in Somalia, where all people want is for their children not to starve to death. Like they're, you know, I mean, and, and these are not people who are bringing terrorism. These are not people who are bringing anything except that they're happy to work any job to succeed and to get a small piece of the American dream. These are the people that are essential to the American economy, like the, the, the uh, workforce that comes in from South America who will work in any heat, in any conditions, and Americans will not do these jobs. Americans won't do these jobs also, Giles. And this was very interesting when I was in North Dakota. I spoke with somebody who's involved in the fracking business up there. They've got a huge natural energy business up there. And whether or not you agree with fracking, and, and you know, I don't, just for the record, but it has created employment, it has created jobs. But this um, guy told me, he said, we can't get employees. He said, we're, we're 
begging the Trump administration, we're petitioning them to let in foreign workers, to let in Mexican workers, because we cannot find workers in North Dakota. And I said, but surely there aren't that many jobs in North Dakota. And he said, nobody can pass a drug test. The opioid crisis has wiped out every person between the ages of, say, 20 and 45 who would otherwise be employable. They cannot pass a drug test. So there were 30,000 open jobs in North Dakota when I was there at the end of 2018, and they were desperate to fill them, but they couldn't find people to fill them. You know, and these were well-paying jobs. So, is he when you like you obviously watched it play play out? We watched it yeah. from afar. Most of us that are listening yeah. in, in this conversation watched it and thought. Uh, well, well, that's the nail in the coffin. Well, oh, well, that's the nail in the coffin. Well, surely all these women and all these accusations, that's the end of that. Nobody could vote for this man. Did you call it like Simon Carswell was on the show here uh, just prior to it, and he essentially called it on the show that he's going to get in. Did you did you were you blindsided or were you in that kind of Carswell community? No, and and all credit to Carswell. What I thought was that he had a huge base. He had tapped into something very real. But at that stage, until James Comey, until he announced that he was reinvestigating Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton was ahead by six, seven, eight, twelve points in some districts. But Hillary Clinton made her own mistakes, and and not going to the to the the, the um, swing states was one of them. She should have spent a lot more time in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. So she did make her own mistakes, and she did. Yeah, she won the popular vote by by three million. So you know, did Donald Trump win by the rules of the game? Absolutely, he won. But did America want Donald Trump? A majority of Americans know. No, they didn't. Mm. Um, they, you know, a majority of Americans did vote for Hillary Clinton, and three million is quite a substantial majority. But you know, it's one of the things that I've never understood. If I were a Democrat and I had lost two elections in a row, two because of the Electoral College, and where in a democracy it's the will of the people, and the will of the people is thwarted by this electoral college, I would say, let's get rid of the electoral college. And I've no idea why the Democrats have never done that. They, the Democrats lack spine. They lack, the, they lack the stomach for fight, which the Republicans have in spades. The Democrats don't, they, they really, they, they're snowflakey. You know, they, they are, it has to be said. Like, I can't imagine what the dawning realisation was for Hillary supporters. And we kind of watched it on their faces. Such was the nature of the coverage and the, you know, just the amount of rubbing it in the face that went on afterwards was, Mm -hmm. you know, probably made it unlike any other election campaign uh, uh, before that. And probably ever again will there be such vitriol afterwards about uh, you were wrong and the, you know, you were wrong, too. I mean, uh, if you were, you were, you were on the side of saying, no, we're going to have our first female president, were you not? Yeah. Yeah. And so how did that, like as a professional and as someone whose job it is, like a lot of the pollsters who were also proven to be, uh, you know, that people weren't even telling them the truth when they spoke to them. It must have rocked you personally and professionally. Yeah, no, it did. Because as you say, I, I mean, and it's, 
it's a humbling thing to to be completely blindsided. And um, as I said, like I mean, when the Comey letter came out, and you could feel America just going, oh. I thought, oh, Jesus, this could cause trouble, you know. But but until then, I was looking at the polls and I was, you know, talking to people and I was I was out covering everything. And as I said, I knew Donald Trump had tapped into something. The rallies were packed. He he had a group and a constituency that were never going to vote for anyone else, mm. you know, and no matter what happened. And yeah. that was that was very evident from late in 2015. No matter what scandal came out about women, about his finances, about his taxes, there was a core constituency, probably 35% of the electorate, who were going to vote for Donald Trump regardless. And then I think, as I say, you know, it was the worst kind of wrong because you were wrong because the, le- the Electoral College, I was, I was wrong, Donald Trump won. Uh, but then, and I think what w- would have been better almost for everybody would have been if he had beaten Hillary Clinton with the vote, with the popular vote, because the fact that she won the popular vote by three million really just underscored the injustice of this, that he, people felt he didn't really win, that he didn't win, that he got there through an electoral college fluke, through a system that was has been obsolete for well over 100 years, mm. you know, um, and and so there was a feeling that it was unfair. It wasn't a legitimate win. And I think that's one of the things that has driven Donald Trump crazy, <laughs> that, you know, of all the things, and I think that was the whole thing with the Russian investigation, all that, that he sees the fact that he lost the popular vote as being seized on to in some way delegitimize his presidency. You know, it happened with Al Gore and George Bush as well. But in that instance, Al Gore only lost the popular vote by half a million. So it still seemed unfair. And the fact that the Supreme Court weighed in was was unforgivable. It was, I think, still the biggest blunder the Supreme Court has ever made, that they would weigh into an election and trample over states' rights, you know, which was the issue they were asked to decide on, and basically handed to George Bush by stopping the recount. So in both instances, you know, it, they weren't fair victories. So I think Democrats had a right to feel aggrieved, but then why not do something about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but yeah, in terms of being wrong, I felt, yes, that we, we all missed it. We all, we all, not everyone, Simon, didn't, um, but that a lot of us missed it because we did feel that the polls were saying that Hillary Clinton was 12 points ahead. And as I said, the polls were in some ways, everybody says the polls were wrong, but in fact, on the popular vote, which is what they were polling on, the polls were actually pretty accurate. Really? Yeah, because they said she would win the popular vote. Uh, they didn't. Now, the, the key thing was the Electoral College, and certainly that it was a mistake not to pay more attention to that. But, you know, um, and that was a mistake that I made. Uh, but Pennsylvania and Wisconsin had been sort of pretty reliably um, democratic for the last couple of, of um, decades. And I think, you know, there was complacency. There was complacency amongst the media, including me. There was complacency with Hillary Clinton, certainly, and her advisers. There, there was complacency amongst Democrats. I think the only people who weren't complacent were Republicans because they really thought that not only would Hillary Clinton win, but that the, the Democrats would take the House and they would take the Senate. There was a fear of that as well. And as it turned out, it was a rout for the Republicans. People really rubbed their hands together when I said that you were going to be on the podcast. They really, really (laughs) enjoy you and your coverage and particularly the sparring sessions with Cal Thomas on The Last Word. Cal's Uh, a great friend of mine. How hard is it, though, to cover this president when it seems really, really obvious to anyone with two eyes and an understanding of psychology and even the most rudimentary knowledge of narcissism would tell you we're looking at someone with some issues 
and some major problems and dysfunctions with how he deals with being wrong himself, um, views his role and his his actions uh, relative to the rest of the world. How hard is it to cover it with a straight face and not just go kind of throw your hands in the air and go, well, what are we dealing with? Like, what are we looking at here? Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to laugh sometimes. I mean, I don't think humour has, or the, the ability to see the absurdity in things and the humour in things, I don't think it's ever been more essential. I, I think, you know, we do have to laugh, but that doesn't mean that we don't take it seriously. And I think that exactly as you said, on the one hand, Donald Trump, and, and you referenced this earlier, Charles, um, on the one hand, he has delivered what he said he would deliver for the evangelicals, the corporations, corporate America and wealthy America. He has given them what they wanted and more. They absolutely love him. You know, he has delivered uh, the, uh, the the constituency, as you said, that he hasn't delivered to, he hasn't built his wall, he hasn't stopped Muslims coming into the country, he hasn't managed to succeed in, in you know, playing to the, the worst impulses of America, largely because of organisations like the ACLU, the American Council for Civil Liberties, and other organisations, and work by immigration lawyers work by ordinary Americans who are standing up and, and being counted. So, but on the the rages and the Twitter and the the, the, temper, the temper tantrums and the, the vitriolic abuse of anyone who may disagree with him, you know, legitimately and, and is, is a new era and it's a new norm. My concern is that this should not be seen as normal. This, this presidency should be seen as an aberration. And whoever is the next president, they should not see Donald Trump's playbook as the way to run America because the, just the, the race to the bottom in, in terms of public discourse is horrible. It's horrible to witness. And then you go on to the other catastrophic things he's done, like pull it, pulling troops out of northern mm. Syria, you know, um, and just what it says to allies, the way that everything he seems to do seems to play to what exactly what Russia wants. You know, it may be, I don't know, I'm not inside Donald Trump's head, it may be just a happy days for Vladimir Putin, it may be just look that he certainly knew what he was doing when he backed Trump, um, or it may be that Trump is in some sort of all of him, but it's, to me it defies logic that you would go against American foreign policy to do something that directly suits mm. um, Vladimir Putin in such a volatile region. You know, I, I don't see the logic. So I think it's not just that I I, um, I don't understand his logic. I think that he's catastrophically ill-informed about foreign affairs, which George W. Bush was as well. And of course, his ignorance was exploited completely by Dick Cheney and by the neocons. Um, and, and he was too callow to, to really question a lot of it until it was too late. I don't think George Bush was as stupid as everybody painted him to be, but I think he was quite happy to outsource his foreign policy to somebody who he knew was on the hard right. And, you know, he, that that was questionable in itself. Uh, but but I think with Trump, I don't know. It's it's America, as I say, it's, it's a different America now. I was, but what always made me very optimistic about America was its capacity to regenerate, to regrow, to learn from its mistakes. And we really saw that after Bush Cheney, that they switched from these ultimate establishment insiders to a young black American who was what for, in his 40s at the time who had almost no political experience and they were happy to go with him because he represented integrity, idealism, all the things that America really prides itself on correctly. Um, and, and then to see the pendulum swing the other way eight years later where you had a Barack, uh, Obama presidency which made its mistakes and again Syria being 
one of the unforgivable ones, I think, and, and a very weak foreign policy in a lot of ways. And also um, an inability or to, to recognise that, that not all of America was out of the woods, that a lot of Americans were still suffering. So I don't think Obama was a perfect president by any means, but I think he had empathy, he had integrity, he had the ability to listen to people, and he, he had the cerebral chops to do the job. Now, I so that people turned their back on all of that because there was not one scandal in the Obama presidency in eight years. I don't think that's ever happened. Amazing. in the America. There were no financial scandals. There were no sex scandals. There was no cronyism, no corruption. It, it was astonishing that he ran such a squeaky clean White House. And he led from the top because he was, I, I think he is an ex an exemplary person as an example and a role model for young people. You know, that, that you play fair, you treat people with respect, you work hard and, and you know, and you have fun. You know, he had a, like the White House when he was there, they were, they were always having parties and having cultural events and, you know, it wasn't a boring White House. It was a lot more fun than it is now, <laughs> I suspect well, for everyone. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you mentioned Carl Thomas is a friend and, uh, yes. but he's not, he's one of many uh, people that you you must encounter who hold wildly different views to you, particularly on, you know, how history will view Barack Obama and how how history will review, review Donald Trump's presidency. Um, how do you manage to be friends with them? How do you separate it from, you know, some of the some of the conversations that you've had with him on air with Matt Cooper have seemed quite heated. They, he's oh, they are. <laughs> they are absolutely. Yes. Well, then explain I mean, that one to us because I I don't tend to get in okay. heated discussions like that with my friends. Do you know what, Charlotte? If we, I really do believe this, a lot of my friends have totally different views to me because if I want to just agree with myself, I can just sit at home and mm. tell myself I'm right about everything. You know, I mm. mean, really, it's well, it's that is what I'm people much... are doing now. They're they're really avoiding anyone yeah, who disagrees it... with them. But it's very, very boring. And you don't learn anything from just talking to people who think the same as you, or you learn very, very little. You know, I mean, you need to consider other people's points of views and you need to respect other people's points of views. And that is key. Cal is a really good person. He's a very religious man. He's a very conservative man. He grew up in an America that he hardly recognises now, um, and he holds views that, that he's very, very committed to. And I do respect that. Now, we argue about Trump because I do, I've said to Cal on air sometimes that I don't think he believes sometimes what he's I saying. I agree, 100%. Because he is a very decent human being. And there have been many times, I, and I, I joke with him, I think, I say, Cal, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> you're joining our team, you're coming to our side, because there have been no, a number of times recently where he has said that he hasn't agreed with things that Donald Trump has done. He has called him out. And I think that's the kind of conservative that people can respect and mm. should respect. He's entitled to his views on everything. But where he really sees something that he thinks is is indefensible, he doesn't, by and large, try to defend it. And, you know, and as I say, he's we have he's a very he's a very witty, amusing guy. He's he's terrific company. I have a lot of time for him. Well, let's get to our uh potential candidates. This isn't a quick fire round, but it kind of okay, is in some ways. <laughs> You've said that Joe Biden's a very nice guy, but the more you see of him, the less you're going to get politically. Yep. What do you mean by yep. that? 
what I mean by that is he is a really decent human being. He's a nice man, but he's not a great candidate for the presidency. And I've noticed this with, with Joe Biden before. He's 77. I'm not ageist. But you know what? There are young 77-year-olds and there are old 77-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump has a phenomenal amount of energy. And he does have the energy of somebody much younger than him. And he even has the ferocity and the, you know, the emotional turbulence of somebody. You know, a toddler wouldn't be an inaccurate description. <laughs> He's very, very young in a lot of ways. Like he can go all the way to two years old. But Joe Biden, I don't, you know, I remember covering Bernie Sanders in 2016 and he had a very exciting campaign and the young people in particular just rallied to him and they were fiercely loyal to him because they, they really tuned into his integrity and his and his idealism. But Bernie Sanders by the end of the primary was exhausted. I could see it. He was physically and mentally exhausted. He would not have gone the distance if he had been the candidate. I don't think he would I don't think he would have been able for a, an election campaign. I can't tell you how brutal it is. I've been on five now and I'm just there sitting at the back like you know, covering it. I mean, they are relentless. They're demanding you cover three, four events a day. You're eating horrible food. You're staying in horrible hotels. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're driving constantly. It's physically and mentally grueling. So I really do think that um, you have to be, you've got to have the, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for that I cannot think? The, the, the grit, I suppose, to do it. I'm not sure that Biden has the physical or mental grit for it, to be quite honest. He's a decent man. He's he's a really nice man. Um, anytime I've met him, I've been really impressed with just how how humble he is in many ways and, and how how approachable he is and, and, and you know, he, he loves chatting, but they're not necessarily the qualities that he needs at the moment. Mm. I don't think that he'll win the primary, but I do think now, I'm going to caveat this, because I do think that the way that this impeachment campaign may play out, uh, basically it'll be going to the Senate in January, February. Uh, now, January, February is the most critical time of primary season. It's when you have to be on the campaign trail, you have to be in New Hampshire, you have to be in Iowa, you have to be in Nevada. And every year I've covered it before, all of the candidates literally have gone there straight after Christmas and they haven't left until the, you know, basically Super Tuesday because they really do stay on the campaign trail every day. This time we have four or five senators running for campaign. We have Bernie Sanders, we have Kamala Harris, we have Elizabeth Warren, we have Amy Klobuchar and we have Cory Booker. So that means that five of the candidates who are who are in the top tier um, you know, it's certainly in the top half dozen, most of them, will not be on the campaign trail because they will be required to turn up in the Senate every day as the jury on the impeachment trial. Wow. So that kind of leaves the field pretty clear for, if assuming that the impeachment goes ahead, it leaves the field pretty clear for Joe Biden and for Pete Buttigieg. Wow. So, again, I would have said that were the impeachment trial not looming, that Joe Biden has very little chance. But now I think that you just it's it's always about events, isn't it? Something can happen totally unforeseen out of the blue and will change the dynamic and everything. Nobody saw James Comey coming out 10 days before the election saying, I'm reopening a criminal investigation into Hillary Clinton. You know, people don't see events until they happen and then you have to recalibrate accordingly. So what I'm going to say, Charlotte, to cover myself is <laughs> that nobody has any idea how this election is going to turn out. I think Donald Trump could win 
quite easily again. Um, he's starting off with 36% or 38% or 40% of the electors who will not vote for anyone else, no matter who they are. And that's a pretty healthy innings for starters, you know. And then there are people yeah. who vote for Trump quietly because, you know, they pay less um, money in tax or they're better off or whatever, and they don't really want to talk about it, but they will quietly vote for Trump because his policies are benefiting them economically. So, you know, I think that one thing we learned from 2016 is that really nobody knows anything. <laughs> I think it wasn't William Holden who said that in Hollywood uh, 50 yeah. years ago when he was right. <laughs> he was right. Nobody knows anything in Hollywood or Washington. Well, how, I mean, that does make it very hard to do your job as well because you're, uh, you know, people are coming to you for your opinion. But, you know, you must now feel a little bit like it's it's not what it was. Or you're there. There you are with me kind of, you know, covering your your bases is like when you then make a call on Kamala Harris saying that she's very equivocal, she is always saying, well, we need to have a conversation on that. Does that like is it harder then to make these predictions and calls that everybody's so keen to get from you? Yeah, Uh, well, Kamala Harris to me has been one of the big disappointments. I attended her her launch, launch for campaign at the end of January this year uh, up in Oakland. There were over 20,000 people at the launch wow. for a campaign. Nobody got those figures. At the, Donald Trump had to pay 300 extras to turn, <laughs> actors to turn up for his his launch, which was down the elevator or the escalator yeah. in, in um, Trump Tower. He, I don't think he's had a rally, certainly not one that I've been at. Uh, he claims to have 30,000. I don't think I've ever seen 20,000 people at a Trump rally. 10,000 certainly. 15,000 maybe, but not 20. So for her, for 20,000 people to turn out, I thought, and she's very charismatic. She's very telegenic. I've observed her. She's very, very smart. I've observed her in the Senate, just from the press gallery when she's on the Senate floor. People like her. The Republican senators like her. Democratic senators like her. She comes across as somebody who is a nice person, but who's tough. And I think that's what you need. But I thought that her campaign, her campaign has really kind of disappeared. Now, she may come back. She may impress people again. She's a, she's a, formidable debater. She's a, she's a, as a prosecutor, she can really come into her own when she asks questions in the Senate, but she hasn't taken positions. She hasn't got a message. And I think that it, Donald Trump had a message. It was build a wall, bring back jobs, you know, to America and, and whatever the other one was, I can't remember. But anyway, his, his message was very clear. It was America first. Kamala Harris doesn't have a message. And when people ask her hard questions, she says, well, we should certainly have a conversation about that. Or words to the equivalent, nobody ever won an election, not even for dog catcher by saying, we mm-hmm. should certainly have a conversation about that. It's not how you win a primary and it's certainly not how you win an election. So unless she radically revamps her campaign, I don't see her resurging again. And I think that it's sort of a shame because she had a lot of what I think was needed to beat Donald Trump. Um, in some ways, Elizabeth Warren is easier to knock than Kamala Harris because people even Americans, a lot of Americans don't want her, her health care for all. They're not they, they want their the Americans and health care. You know what? We could spend a day talking about that. <laughs> but we won't. It's it's very hard to understand. Well I want to get back but, to you because we're running out of time. Uh and I, I do want to bring it back to you because you know that you're the focus of this interview and as much as oh. we uh you know we have to talk about this in unusual and incredible job that you do at the most tumultuous time in America's history. Uh, it's a hard job. It's it's an extremely it's difficult a- thing for anyone to do. 
How how are your energy levels doing it? And oh, what toll too, has too it? Much. <laughs> I think I have too much energy. As anyone who knows me will tell you, I, I could do it with getting rid of a really? bit of it. Yeah. Uh, no, you know what? It, it it can be a hard job, but it's not. It's a wonderful job. The number of historic moments that you see, and like even in the last 20 years, like the good and the bad and the awful, like being there, seeing 9-11 up close, like being down at the UN reporting on, on the run up to the war in Iraq, the US invasion in 2003, then seeing Barack Obama, like covering his campaign, being at his inaugural event, which was, I have never been at anything like it. Um, contrary to what Trump says, his event was nothing like it, uh, where two million people filled every spare inch of Washington, D.C., every inch of it, and they were so full of joy and so full of celebration, and it really seemed like a moment that America had finally come of age and turned a corner, and you had this brilliant, charismatic handsome leader and his beautiful family and th this idealist who just seemed like a good person and who proved himself to be a good person and the feeling of hope and optimism after those awful especially the last few years for America the, the crash the you know the wars the torture everything it just seemed like a really a new morning in America and that is a day that that will be with me for Indeed, as it will Donald Trump's inauguration be with me yeah. for, for different reasons. But, you know, you do see history. You, like, there were so many other events that I covered. And, and I feel really privileged to be in a position where I can do that. And when people say, oh, but it's hard work, so what? You know, nurses, teachers, firemen work a damn sight harder than I do. You know, well, and, and it's a lot more demanding. We kind of come full circle then to my final question. And it relates to, you know, the misogyny and the sexism that's kind of been uncovered, the abuse that's been yep. uncovered in yep. the last couple of years. I mean, that is a the earth shifting on its axis in so many ways in terms of yep. gender relations the world over. What have you witnessed from it and how hard was it to keep your emotion out of it when those on the other side were saying, I mean, some of these women are creating these stories and are calling into question the validity of something like as, as simple as the Me Too movement? It was really hard. And, you know, I'm just thinking, as you say that, of Christine Blasey Ford and what she went through and what she endured and the way she was vilified and ridiculed for having the courage. And you could see what it took out of her to come forward and testify because she really did believe that Brett Kavanaugh, because of her direct experience with him. And, you know, I'm sorry, but I have no reason. I think as a journalist, a lot of people lie to you when you're a journalist. It's, it's, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's an occupational hazard. <laughs> people lie to you all the time. Are they concealed stuff? Are they twist stuff? You know, and you just deal with it and you've got to arm yourself with the facts. And they're, they're the only defense at the end of the day are, are facts, provable, you know, facts. And Christine Blasey Ford didn't have 100% provable facts, but she had circumstantial evidence. She had authenticity. And authenticity is something that you can spot I believe, in anyone very, very quickly. And I think that when it came to that hearing and when we saw how she behaved during that hearing and how Brett Kavanaugh behaved, the outrage that his white male privilege was being questioned and yeah. somebody would have the temerity to take it from him when he was going to be a Supreme Court judge from the time he was in school.
fool, you know, and, and it was just that entitlement and the ugliness of his temper and the way he spoke and the way he snarled at Amy Klobuchar. And, you know, you really saw what you were getting there and still people voted for him. And, you know, and I really and the Republicans who did it and tried to cover themselves with fig leaves um, were to me shameful. They were shameful because people knew that he was not suitable, even if they believed he had never even been in the same room as Christine Blasey Ford. By his temperament, by the way he conducted himself during that hearing, he proved himself to be absolutely unsuitable and unequal to the job of being a Supreme Court judge. Uh, and yet they voted for him. So I, th- that really, really um, discouraged me and, and made me feel just very angry because people were not looking at the facts. They weren't looking at, at other evidence as well, including evidence from himself with his absurd little yearbooks and all the other mm. things that he was obviously, look, a lot of teenagers are heavy drinkers. They drink, they binge drink. Teenagers do it in Ireland. Teenagers do it in America. It's wrong, but you know what? Teenagers do it. So so it's, I wouldn't condone, say because of that that he was disqualified, but just what people said about him, the way he behaved, his aggression, his ugliness, his meanness, his violence, you know, and he had, there were plenty of eminently suitable Supreme Court judges. He was, it wasn't like he was the only one on the bench. Yeah. Well, tell me this then, if you can accept and admit that it was hard not to feel anger yeah. when you were witnessing that and attempting to report it objectively when everyone around you is uh, or not everyone well a lot of people a involved of people, yeah. are, aren't yeah. being objective in any way what do you do no. like what is the thing that Marion McKeown does where you just try and just as you say wash yourself of it I just gives them a good headbutt. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't punch and I don't headbutt. Although there are times when I do feel the urge. Um, no, you know what? The only thing you can do, as I said, the facts are your best friend. Facts are your best friend. If what you're after is the truth and you really want to know what happened. And, you know, I haven't even spoken about all the other women, the, the Harvey Weinstein, mm. Jeffrey Epstein, the abhorrence and the, the, the suffering of, of people in all of that. And I feel at least with Weinstein that, that there is a calling to account of sorts that he did lose, you know, his profession deservedly. So he is being sued. He will probably end up in prison. I feel that he is being held to account. But Kavanaugh was promoted You know, Kavanaugh was rewarded and that's the injustice because things have happened. It's too late to undo them, but people can be held to account. And I feel to knowingly reward someone and Trump was rewarded. Exactly. All this stuff that came out about him sexually harassing women out of his own mouth, that awful Access Hollywood tape, Mm. he was rewarded. And and that to me is where, you know, if people didn't know and if then something emerges and people take appropriate action, I think, okay, that's all you can do at this point. But to reward people who behave like that is, is to me just sickening. It's sickening. Well, Marion, it's sad to end Sorry, it on I that note. No, oh, you, you did ask me. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess if, I was um, wondering where facts, you go and facts, what. Um, are, are the, but, the, but what the, do you uh, think? Sure, but what? But what about afterwards when you're, you know, you've pressed full stop and return and save and send on whatever it is you've been doing? What do you do to completely switch off? I mean, I have a really um, great life. I really enjoy my life. I've got, I mean, I adore my family. I've got wonderful, amazing friends. And I, you know, I do a lot of travel just for the sake of travel as well. 
Um, I, you know, it's, it's, and you know, you get involved in your community, you get involved in, you realise that the, the world isn't, a, certainly isn't about your byline. And even though huge things are happening that we really want people to be aware of, um, you can, you can only do so much. And I think, again, you just have to laugh a bit. You, you have to laugh mm. and, and value the people that are in your life and, and value your friends and your family. And, and I know that all sounds very cliched and hallmark, but, but I haven't got a better answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, comedy is the, the other half of my life. Uh, that's what I do. Um, my bread and well, butter is stand up. And I guess I've noticed the rise of uh, John Oliver and uh, the increasing importance of Saturday Night Live. And it would it would it would tie yeah. in with what you're saying that we've got yeah, to laugh. You know- we do. I find John Oliver a bit insufferable, to be quite honest. Now, I really like Bill Maher because I think Bill Maher is very angry, but he's very funny. And I think you probably know this as a comedian. I'm sure you can speak to this. A lot of comedians I've spoken to say it comes, the best comedy comes from anger. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I'm sure you would certainly have a view on it. And, and you do find that the people who can be the funniest can be the people who are really angry about things. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, I find Bill Maher really, I don't agree with uh, by any means, everything he says, or even most of what he says, but I do find that his ability to skewer hypocrisy and deceit and falsehoods is fantastic. And I, I do find that really, uh, you can then just sit back and laugh uh, at that. And and there is some fantastic satirical comedy in America. American comedy is superb. You know, really the, the, like, do you remember Melissa McCarthy with yeah, Sean Spicer? I, I mean, that was just genius. genius. <laughs> yeah. You know, An so, essential. So I think. <laughs> we do. We do. I like. I laugh thinking about it. We do have to to laugh, but laughing is not the same as being complacent. You know, you you can't. Mm. You can let off steam by laughing, but you can't really let down your guard. You know, um, at the same time, because you, you've got to you've got to keep an eye on what's really happening. Well, Mary McKeown, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the it's podcast. Been a pleasure talking Thank to you, you so Thank much. you so much. What can you say about that conversation other than what a national treasure Marion McKeown truly is to hear more of her every single week speaking at length about what is taking place in America right now as only she can with the raw honesty, the contacts on the ground uh, and just the insight of all these years spent over there. She is something else. You can hear her every single week on Irishman in America, a Patreon exclusive podcast from the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network. It's available on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. You pay as little as a fiver a month and in return you get access to everything we have released in the past, everything we're releasing in the future and double size episodes of all three of our weekly episodes. Sure, you can't do better than that. Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Hopefully I'll see you over there. Production on today's podcast was by me and Tina and Mikey. Make it all possible. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our...